Chapter 7 of My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Cotter. MerlotTranslations.com. My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum by Herman Charles Merivale. Chapter 7. As I look back at the first chapter of this story of mine and see that I wrote down that my experience had nothing in it especially painful, I wonder at the aptitude of human nature to forget and forgive where it is only permitted. Now that I have brought my mind to bear upon the details, they seem to me fraught with a quite exceptional pain. It needed time and thought for me to measure, in anything like its depth and height, the wrong that was done to me. Oblivion alone shall remain, when this, my closing chapter, is finished, for forgiveness has in my case been made impossible, since, si l'effort est trop grand pour la faiblesse humaine, de pardonner les mots qui nous viennent d'autrui, épargne-toi de moi, le tourment de la haine, à défaut de pardon, laisse venir l'oubli. When I was first imprisoned among madmen, after the piece of childish folly which had in it no object, if it had any at all, but to make those come and nurse me whose clear duty it was to do so, I was so ill and broken that, had he been in my case, mine enemy's dog, though he had bit me, should have stood that night against my fire. The second time it was perhaps more cruel still, and the thing was done under cover of the lunacy laws. If they protect mere heartlessness so, what must they do in cases where purposes directly evil are to be served? The sadness of this story is affecting me in spite of myself, and makes me anxious to bring it to an end. The second sentence was the same thing over again, except that I knew that I was in an asylum and resigned myself to feel that I had no chance of escaping. Nobody cared. Why should I escape? I had a few visitors the first time. When they came, a well-set luncheon table and a good bottle of wine replaced the garbage which we were too often expected to consume, and the unwalled grounds and pretty gardens of Pecksniff Hall were suggestive of a country house in the olden time. My lawyer came to see me and eat mutton, a good fellow, of whom it is pleasant to think, in the bitterness which will mix with my ink as I go on. He happened to bring with him the first copy of The World that I had seen, and left it with me as an odd link with his forgotten godmother. I, with a warder, saw him off by the train, and wondered rather why I should not go too. I had not realised the asylum and talked to him only of money matters which had been troubling me. The second time I was too far gone. I wanted no visits, and cared for none, though day after day I woke from my troubled dreams, not all bad now, but some singularly beautiful, with a feeling that surely somebody would rescue me before night. How ill I was after that opium journey, and whether dying or not, I do not know. The master said that I was, and after the gagging and drugging it is very probable. It was on a hot night in June that I lay down in that evil place again, in the farthest room in a remote wing of the building, between two keepers, 
who threw themselves one on each side of me and held me close between them the hot night through, snoring out their own heavy sleep or waking to hold me closer if I tried to stir. I happened to light afterwards upon some of the notes of one of them upon this night, in which he reported me as having had some bad turns, of violence, I suppose, in pain as I still was from my fall and from the gag, opium dazed and desolate, weaker than a child. For days and nights this went on with a constant change of warders more or less rough and hard. They were told off to watch me three or four at a time because of my dangerous qualities and my stupid efforts to get free from them. Among themselves they laughed at it, knowing my weakness, and the smallest boy among them, for there was a stock of small and ugly boys on the staff, would lead me about with his little finger. But sometimes a detachment of them would carry me to my bedroom or keep me down in bed, tearing my clothes in the process. To account for deficiencies in my wardrobe, of which each of us had a list like a schoolboy's, it was said in the notes that I tore them up myself, a well-known sign of insanity. How I dreaded that north room. It was in the coldest corner of the house, cold and hot, and rat-haunted, and much as Mrs. Gamp and her friend must have seemed to their dying charge, the keepers seemed to me, as they crooned in the corners through my semi-delirium. It seemed to me that the doctors had wondrous little to say to it. They came to see me now and then, for a minute or two, in my bed. The house doctor, who so impressed my friend, had lived for years in the place, and seemed to have no ideas beyond it. He kept dreadful little things in bottles, and noted conscientiously, by a machine under my window, which looked like the desk of an orchestral conductor, the amount of daily and nightly rainfall. We must all of us do something, I suppose. In the summer he was a great archer, and strutted about with a bow and quiver. A few of the patients joined in the sport. A melancholy lord, who never spoke, but was my lorded by everybody, much after the fashion of saner circles, and one or two others. I tried it once, and was rather gratified to find that, though I had never used bow and arrow before, I scored better than the house doctor. But the man-monkey was allowed to dry his hand too, and played hideous tricks with his arrows, and grimaced so that I could not face the amusement more. Of the cricket I had enough on my first visit, and would not run the gauntlet again. To some sort of distraction I was occasionally driven by despair, for the constitutionals round the mile circuit of the grounds, or among the lanes and roads, were maddening. The Sunday walks were the worst, when the British villager was out on holiday and gaped and wondered at us. In the winter months I made occasional attempts to follow the pack of harriers which was kept for our benefit, which, at all events, amused the warders and countrysiders a good deal. I was never fond of harriers, and this was not, perhaps, the place or time to acquire the taste. Half an hour of the muddy fields tired out the weak body and head, and aggravated my weary dreams. But it gave a brief space of comparative freedom, and I was able to associate more with a good young fellow who came to the place as companion to the man-monkey, and showed a decided preference for my society. His birth cannot have been pleasant, 
and he found in my room his only refuge from the general disorder of the house and attendants, though even there we could not escape from the one tune which one of them was always beating to death on an ancient piano in one of the public rooms, to the behoof of the broken nerves collected there. I had been removed from the north room then, I suppose in favour of some more violent newcomer. I found, too, another pleasant companion in an officer who had seen much foreign service and liked talk. He wondered why he was there. He had been ill, he told me. We first met at the billiard table, and he came up to me at once and said that he knew my face and must have seen me at Carlsbad, as he had. He was well enough to shrug his shoulders over the matter and even to find amusement in studying the delusions of the madmen and talking them over. He had been knocked so much about the world, he said, that he cared little how it all ended, and he had no special desire to meet again the friends who had imprisoned him. I do not wonder. He may have been mad, but I saw him often, and his was the best imitation of sanity I ever saw. At all events, it did him small good to be there. We followed the harriers and ate sandwiches together, and speculated why we had been singled out to be crushed by this tower of Siloam. Once, feeling a thought stronger, I wrote a letter to an old literary friend. It was very harmless, for I did not care to complain, but the friend was a member of a well-known legal family, and his name on the envelope caused a sensation. It was believed to be in my officer's handwriting, and he was asked why he had been writing to a lawyer and what about. Why the heads of an asylum should be afraid of their best friends, the lawyers, I do not know, but it seems they are. However, I do not exaggerate. My letter was sent. The lunatic harriers would make a chapter by themselves, but I have done with them. I began to believe at last that, in the confusion of the whole business, dogs, doctors, keepers, patients and huntsmen were all going Hamlet's road together. I would give a good deal, prejudice apart, to give some next friends and headshakers, the Marcelluses and Bernardos of society, we could, and if we would, a few turns with those unearthly hounds. How I passed my evenings, as how I passed my days, save in an occasional study of old novels, an occasional hour at lunatic billiards, an occasional game at draughts or chess with anyone with brains enough to know the moves, I do not know. I was too weak of head and too ill to study, as I have said, or to shake the burrs from off me. On the Sundays I had five o'clock tea with the master, the only patient so privileged, I think, but he usually talked of one Dr. Blanc and the inferiority of French asylums, failing the elder Grossmith, and I was none the better, Twice did a younger doctor, one of the family and of the firm, for Pecksniff Hall was quite a fact in county society, and had been so for some generations, asked me to dine with him at his house, apart also from the asylum. I found him a good fellow enough, and his wife very kindly, and I despair in conveying to my readers how pleasant it was to dine like a gentleman at a pleasant table. No other patient came, and, as he phrased it, we sank the shop. Did it never occur to him that the shop and I were rather incongruous? 
He was fond of burlesques, and he was a good hand at billiards, and he looked like a straightforward heavy cavalry officer. The principal informed me that he received me for the second time against the wishes of his family. I was ill and sentimental, and thought how kind the old man was, and how hard his family must have been to grudge me the only home which I seemed likely to get. I have hoped some time since that the family took a view of their own upon the case, and had no wish to make part with mine, but I do not know. An entertainer, collaborating with a lady novelist, brought a little play called Cups and Saucers to be enacted in the dining room. A merry little play, I thought, and the warders and servants liked it well enough. But when I had watched it for a time, I retreated to my solitude, for it was more than I could bear. The lunatic next to me dilated in a loud voice upon the price of potatoes, which was wide of the plot. He was a wealthy lunatic, and had taken me out for a drive a few days before, had bared his biceps for my admiration, it was even less bicipitous than mine, and waxed very wroth because I asked for his daily telegraph, when he said he had not done with it. Rumours of war were then in the air, and though it was before the days when Jingo had become a power, he was more intensely and demonstratively Jingo than the flower of the music halls, if the Home Secretary has profited at all by the vials of scorn poured upon his head by Mr. Forbes in his spirited fiasco of Cyprus, he must have enough to do just now in learning the geography of Persia and the Euphrates Valley. But he might yet find the time to do that imprisoned jingo a good turn. Where is the conservative watchfulness that leaves such a vote as this to be lost to humanity? There came a conjurer with a Greek name, who I avoided. There came a child harpist, with a concert, called Little Ada Somebody, whom I would not go and hear. And there were various parties on the ladies' side, which I could not bring myself to face. That ladies' side had for me all the odd fascination of the unknown. It occupied half the large house and there was a little colony of ladies besides, in a pretty little house with a soft poetic name, in the grounds hard by. The native gallantry of the doctors appeared to keep them constantly on the ladies' side. If I ever asked for one of them, he was always there, and would see me when he came back. My friend the officer penetrated the mysteries, and described the little card parties and musical evenings as something very strange. I could not be induced to go, and the record is lost. But I met the poor women in my daily walks, and about the grounds, and learned to know many of their lacklustre faces. One of them, in a bath chair, accosted me once suddenly in the public road as we crossed, with one of the worst words in the English language, and sent me dazed and dreaming home. The female warders accompanied them, smart young women, with a setting of earrings, many of them, who might have been contracted for in the gross by Spears and Pond, who would exchange many a friendly wink and sign with their counterparts of the male side as they passed. From what ranks they are recruited I do not know, and have no special wish to ask. The sadness of the thing was very deep, for, knowing what we men bore, I speculated much what these caged women might have to bear. The law for us is the law for them. The nervous maladies which attack us, 
attack tenfold their more delicate organization, and they are no safer from wrong or selfishness than we. How many times over, to name one danger alone, may the fancies of purpural fever be miscalled madness, and treated, in these places and among these companions, so? Our wives and our sisters are not very safe from the Bastille, as things now are. My time went on. During the bitter winter months the asylum was in the hands of workmen, under repair. The great echoing corridors were being papered and painted, the rooms renewed, the chapel decorated in the approved fashion. The workmen were at work by night as well as by day, and the patients slunk about the passages in greatcoats and warmed themselves at casual fires. I thought that a better time might have been chosen, perhaps, and the confusion seemed to me worse confounded, but that is no affair of mine. Would God it were night, I thought in the morning, and would God it were morning at night, when the warders returned with a rush from their hour out, filled the passages with talk and noise and oaths, and with much ceremony brought bed candles at ten. The plate was beautiful and some of the candlesticks so big that I used sometimes to wonder whether my keeper for the nonce, they were told off to different rooms every night to prevent us from growing too dependent upon anybody, I suppose, was going to precede me backwards to my bedroom. The common breakfast began at eight and the common dinner was at one. There were two or three different mess tables for those who lived in common and the rest ate apart each in his own room. For a long time I used the last privilege, but I gathered at length a sort of desperate courage and thought it better to face my kind as much as I could. Besides, at the common table there was, on the whole, enough to eat, while the private meals I found singularly barmecidal and scraggy. I suppose that, like Oliver Twist, I might have asked for more, but I was afraid of everything and everybody, and, fearing a similar result, refrained. The faces at the board changed little, for ours was practically a place of incurables. Kindly death changed them sometimes, as I have said. Some of those whom I remembered during my first period had changed visibly for the worse, like the poor singer of the beer song, who seemed to me always struggling with a sense of wrong which he could not speak. In the public asylums, I am told, cures are many. They were not so with us. There were times when patients were removed to some other asylum, for the worse it may be, for I have said that Pecksniff Hall has the best of testimonials from the commissioners, but with the exception of the friend of whom I wrote, I remember no case of liberation but one. There was a clergyman confined among us, whose wife took lodgings in the village by. She was with him every day, watched him every day, walked with him every day, and never seemed to me to leave him till she took him away. Brave little woman, how I honoured her, for her nerve must have been tried enough. If these papers of mine make one relation think, as much as I can hope to do, will have been done. The master claimed much credit with me for this cure, May he deserve it, for he must need something to write upon the credit side. The commissioners I saw once during my second confinement. They came down like a wolf on the fold, unexpected. 
Their approach is, I believe, always concealed from the patients, for fear of upsetting their minds. They came with return tickets from town, good for one day. They made a sudden incursion into my room, two or three, I forget which, but one was a short lame gentleman who asked questions. Was I comfortable? Had I headaches? Well, I had that day, from the paint. And did I hear voices? My chair covers were being removed at the time, and I had no space to think, much less speak. Twice in the day afterwards, I begged of the warders to be allowed to see them again. But neither them nor doctor, of course, did I see. I say that I was never mad, and there is not an honest reader of this story who will not believe me. And that is all I saw of Her Majesty's Commissioners in Lunacy. Was I wrong in calling this a farce? I have nothing to suggest to them. Where work is ill done, criticism may do good. Where it is not done at all, criticism is silent. Où il n'y a rien, le roi per ses droits. I wrote afterwards, when I was free, to one of them who had once been a friend of my own, as I thought it my duty to write. He was then functus officio, certainly, and well out of it. But he never answered my letter, which I have no doubt he put complacently by, as a madman's nonsense. It must be a comfortable berth enough, where officers and doctors and lawyers and relatives are all in a tale, and, in the world below here, there are few to find you out. As the man to whom I now owe my freedom said, this must soon have led to softening of the brain. The strain had become terrible. The belief in the existence of a system of organised pillage among this undisciplined crew, which might well have possessed a stronger head than mine was then, was wearing me out, though I tried to argue myself out of it. Some of the men played on it, as I said, and I was becoming too thoroughly ill and nerveless under this trial to be much more than a sort of automaton. I even began to have a sort of feeling that this was my home, and that I might be turned out to wander again when they grew tired of me. When the relation, of whom I have spoken, came to stay in a neighbouring town, not at the asylum, happily for me, I was allowed to spend the day like a boy with an exeat and even in my illness resented the house doctor's objections to giving me too much leave from school. Conscious of fair powers of heart and brain, the paltry unworthiness of the whole thing jarred me even more than greater sins, and it does so still. How ill I was may be judged from the fact that I did not press, scarcely even wish, for my removal. But the skilful doctor who came to see me, I have reached nearly the last in my story now, who had rescued others besides me, practically insisted upon it, and one morning I received at the asylum the news that I was to go. I could not believe it, could not take it in, thought myself permanently on the establishment. The doctors grinned sardonic disgust, intimated that a serious danger was threatening society, and hinted an au revoir. So did the warders, smiling generally and holding out expectant hands. I had been allowed a little pocket money when I was good, but had not much to give. I have not been inclined, upon reflection, to be lavish of donations since. The last report of the attendance was, whether in connection with this tightness of my purse strings or not I cannot say, 
that they had never seen me worse. So the treatment had done me no good, at all events. My new guardian took me to his house by the sea, and, with his wife and daughter, gave me for a time a real home, and was something more than kind. He had not much assistance. From one near relative abroad he received an abusive letter, from the master of Pecksniff Hall an angry warning that he was taking into his house a suicidal and homicidal patient, the most dangerous in his establishment. But a few days before the man had made me his guest at his own tea-table, alone with his wife and young daughters. How does he reconcile the two things? The charge was cruel, and nearly robbed me of my hard-won home. My rescuer believed no word of it, but his wife was naturally frightened, and for a night or two a new watcher slept at my door, and I had to submit to a new cross-examination from two more doctors for the edification of the commission. They said that my eye wandered, and drew up such a certificate that I, who saw it, succeeded in having it sent back to them. Without seeing me again, they mildly drew up another, in quite different terms, which must be the last document recorded and docketed in my case. But my sanity now vindicated itself, and I was free, in spite of the protest which, by the side of the valuable opinion of the warders, robs Pecksniff Hall of all title to my cure. I still had much to bear. For a long time, as I have said, I was represented as under delusions about my relatives. The fact that they had put me in an asylum, I presume, is scarcely one. Circumstances were as much against me as ever, and lightheadedness would still threaten to recur, while asylum dreams, of course, haunted me still more. They have left me at last, but I had to fight them down, and did this time, in whose strength I have ventured, as I am bound to say. I travelled again and grew better, forcing myself to new interest in the scenes and people about me. At last, and in a happy hour for me, I married, though I had almost made up my mind that I never could. One relative wrote me an impertinent letter about this extraordinary step, which is, as the young lady says in the comedy, a thing of frequent occurrence in the metropolis. Another wrote to me within a week of my marriage to threaten me with the possibility of being shut up again. It frightened my young wife for some time, she has told me since, but she is a brave woman and held her tongue. I next found myself charged with intemperate habits, about as near the mark as forgery, and the silliness took away the sting. But it was not nice. It is better to atone for wrong than to excuse it by worse, I think but it is a matter of taste. Liberavi anima meum. My tale is told, as it was my clear duty to tell it, at the cost of some pain. Let those whose duty it is to mend this wickedness do theirs, or at their peril leave it undone. Mr. Hardress Cregan, says Miles, in the Colleen Bon, I make you the present of the contempt of a rogue, and with infinite disgust and scorn, and small hope of better things, I dedicate this true story of the Bastille of Merry England to all whom it may concern. End of chapter 7